It's a perception thing. If you grew up with Joe Exotic on a tiger farm and you love tigers because yay, tigers, besties, rah, rah, rah. And if I bring a tiger into the room right now, you're pumped. Like she wants to go to war and I'm right and you're wrong. If we feel like we don't belong or we don't fit in, we adopt the sort of rebel vibe, right? And what is unsafe to you and what's unsafe to me, I don't know, it's gonna be totally different. What up, weirdos? Welcome back to another episode of Oh Hi Self. I'm your host, Sandra Possing. I hope you know that by now. And today I'm bringing you a guest back for a part two because part one was just not enough. We just scratched the surface and then we wanted so much more. Um, last time my guest was here, we went deep into the world of trauma and then we were so in it that we were just like, oh my gosh, we don't even have the time to go to all these other topics. So if uh, that sounds familiar, our guest once again today is Heidi Rogers. If you have not listened to the previous episode with Heidi, I absolutely demand that you stop what you're doing and go do that first before you listen to this one, because it's going to give you a lot of context that will be very helpful for this one. So the last episode with Heidi was episode number 24. That was I think in the end of 2023 that that came out. So definitely go check that out first if you haven't. But without further ado, um, if you have listened to that episode like a good student, then we'll dive right back into the conversation here. And today um, with Heidi, I would like to hear her riff on three very important topics. One topic being, what do we do when we find ourselves getting defensive? Another topic is the wild, wild west world of parenting. And another topic is neurospiciness and especially neurospicy kids, as Heidi likes to refer to them. So let's start with let's start with defensiveness, which this is a very personal one for me because it's one of the things I've struggled with the most. It's also a quality that I find incredibly like annoying in other people and therefore also very annoying in myself. And it's one of the things that I find the hardest to catch myself and stop myself from doing. Like a typical example would be, I, if I feel slightly criticized, whether it's like valid or not, or it doesn't matter, anything that feels like a criticism to me, I find myself having an overwhelming urge to want to defend myself and to, I, like I start over explaining and it's like I have a, a, an intense, desperate need for the other person to understand where I'm coming from. And I know that when I get defensive, then I'm not really hearing them and I'm not really validating them and kind of the connection breaks and I can feel myself doing it and I don't like how it mm. feels and I don't like that version of myself. And so it's something I'm really working on, but it's very challenging. So if you mm. could share like, what is it that's happening when we get defensive and what can we do about it? So defensiveness, the I, I'm a big fan of like the metaphor of subtitles. And so swapping out when you see something or hear language, um, swapping it out for something else that might be, maybe makes a bit more sense. So whenever you hear your brain go, I think I'm being defensive or that other person's being defensive. If you swap it out and change the word to fear, that sometimes can help navigate what's actually happening and get a bit more clarity. So like in that situation, if someone is criticizing me, the reason why I feel defensive is because it activates a part in me that's afraid that I'm unlovable. I'm stupid. I made a mistake. And we all have those parts. Like we, everyone has, I like to use the analogy of like a boardroom and board members. And so there's like similar to the um, Pixar movie Inside Out where there's like compassionate me and happy me and kind me. Uh, I like to also use defensive me, um, shame me, uh, vulnerable me, sensitive me, the part that is a professional and whatever I'm doing and maybe feels imposter syndrome, but calls themselves an expert. And so if someone is criticizing something that I supposedly know stuff about, then it might kind of get, get that imposter 
syndrome, me feeling triggered. Um, and I like the boardroom analogy uh, with this sort of stuff too, because it kind of helps you separate that there's parts of me that are capable of taking on board what this person is saying or this feedback or comment or whatever. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh-huh. That, or that is what happened. Or you're right. I did say that. And then if you kind of move around the boardroom table, you'll find that then you get to these sort of protective parts and the protectors are the ones that protect things that maybe we're ashamed of or things that we don't like about ourselves or things that are hard. So it could be that you have a protector that say protects vulnerability or protects me feeling stupid. Uh, and a lot of this obviously would go back to childhood and stuff that's happened in our past, not necessarily childhood, but like just stuff that's happened in the past. But if you look at it in two ways, I think of like, so what is it that I'm actually afraid of? What is this person pointing out or calling out that brings up fear? And then the other analogy I like with this or word swap is a lot of times, not a lot of times, I think most of the time when we're sad, we don't really like how that feels. It feels kind of weak or it feels vulnerable or it feels tender. It's not very action oriented. And so our brain in all its wisdom goes here, take the anger bodyguard and just chuck that in front of the sadness. So I like to refer to anger as sad's bodyguard. So whenever anyone is angry, I always ask myself, mm, what are you actually sad about? And whenever mm. I get angry, I ask myself, what am I actually sad about? And just shifting anger is sad's bodyguard, like shifting into that makes you realize how much we're actually like sad and vulnerable about and not actually angry. Like the only reason why my brain went with let's be angry about this is often because I'm so frustrated. I feel so unheard and so sad that I didn't know what else to do to get action or change, but the anger is actually quite mobilizing to the nervous system. And so I think in defensiveness, there's often so much pushback. And what the pushback is, is those protector parts, the bodyguard parts kind of trying to protect the vulnerable, tender sadness or the fear that I'm unlovable or I've done something wrong. Or I think ultimately what it comes down to is I'm afraid of losing connection with you, whoever you are, other person, um, and us not being kind of okay. And the defensiveness is like, yeah, it's a dysfunctional way, but, and, you know, will often cause more fights and more trouble. But I always kind of try to ask, like, especially in private practice with clients, where did that come from? Or the language I'll use is when did that board member get hired? Like what age were you? What era? What job? Like, where was that, that this board member seemed like a good idea for the organization to hire? And usually at some point in the Sandra organization, hiring the defensive board member was smart and it was helpful and it was probably a lot about survival. So there would have been a time in your life or a relationship with a parent or, you know, a fa another family member or a boss or whatever, or friends at school where it made sense for you to defend yourself because maybe they were hypercritical or maybe the constant feeling was I'm not good enough. And so I had to, I felt like I had to constantly defend. And def what am I defending? That deep fear that I'm unlovable or not good enough. That makes so much sense. Just reframing it as fear underneath it. Like, I feel like I have an easy time accessing fear and identifying what am I afraid of when I think of it that way, like in most areas, whereas the defensiveness one, I think because it's such a distasteful behavior too, like it's probably one of the things I find most annoying in other people other than people pleasing, which not surprisingly, those are two of my biggest things. So I see other people do it and I'm like, ew, that is so annoying. Why would you do that? And I'm like, oh, 
I do the exact same thing. Right. Got it. But, but the defensiveness one, it's like, I, I, I can feel myself bristling as I'm about to do it. And it's almost like this. You're like, no, stop. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's happening. Oh, well, okay. And I'll feel myself doing it, but it happens. And then afterwards I'm like, oh, I did it again. Can we, uh, can we pause and have a do-over? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. or can I just try that again? But without sounding like such like a whiny ass little Well, sometimes what you can do to help in that situation, like, so you already have the first step, which is awareness. And that's, you know, as you know, that's like the first step in any kind of change or anything. So you have to first be aware of it and like kind of name it. But the second thing that you can do is to kind of name it as like a person or a animal or like, and why? So that I'm externalizing it from me so that the me and who am I, the observer, the one who sees all of the board members and who observes everything that we can then separate so we don't feel so blended and everyone is mushed. And so if I can separate the defensive part of me, so you could call it defensive me, or you could call it, you know, maybe you have like an alter ego that's like, you know, Sandy D and it's the Sandy Mm -hmm. D defensive. Like when she comes out, that's how, you know, you know, like how, I don't know, I've had friends who have like alter egos when they're drinking and like they're crazy, you know, part that comes out has a funny name and it's like, oh, you know, Frank is coming out. And so you can make kind of a joke about it that, you know, or maybe Chris can say, oh, kind of looks like Sandy D is coming out. And then you're kind of like, ah, and it can help bring it into your awareness that I'm doing it. But also, because I think you probably, like you said, you're, you're catching it. You're like, no, come back. You're seeing seeing her sort of grab the microphone and like, I am speaking for everyone, you know, but if you can try to catch it and then maybe, and this is different for everyone, but maybe for you, if it's coming from a place of fear or that I'm unlovable is a quick way to make me feel not afraid and lovable is a hug that mm. sometimes can really quickly calm the nervous system or even just yeah. a hand, even just a hand on the the knee or the arm. And, you know, I've had with clients many times where I say something and I like, oh, hello, there's your defensive board member. I see I see them step forward and they might kind of come at me. I might do something basically comforting. Right. Because if I if I'm telling myself this person's actually afraid, what do you do with someone who's afraid of the dark? Right. You turn on the lights and you go, hey, it's OK. I'm here. And so what I will often do when I sense a defensive board member stepping forward and a client, I'll like put my my notepad down and I'll kind of like lean forward and I'll be like, hey, hey, I'm not I'm not trying to attack you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm, I'm here to help. OK, I want to I want to help you. So what would happen if we just asked that part that just stepped forward, that part that was just saying, you're wrong, that's not true. That part, I think, is trying to just protect you. And they're doing a great job, right? Because I felt that. I felt that. They were just telling me, back off, Heidi, back off. You're wrong. Don't go there. Mm. I hear you. So I want to honor you, protective, defensive part. And I will do that. I will back off. But is it possible for that part to just step to the side just a little bit? Because I think that there's a sadness or a fear kind of standing right behind you. Is it possible that they could come forward? If I promise I'm not going to hurt them and I'm not going to attack them, would that allow the protector to stand to the side? And a lot of times, as soon as I take that approach, tears, <laughs> they, they mm. have a big release of tears and sort of, they, they may not say it, but sort of like, thank you for moving that protector to the side because we don't know how to do that in here. That dude always jumps in and takes over. Thank you for seeing that there was actually a little sad kid back there behind this big, tough bully. And then we get to kind of the root of the issue of what is actually going on. 
I think we're going to call her Darcy because I like alliteration Ooh, and because yes. I have another character. I also love the inside out uh, boardroom yeah. situation and mm-hmm. use that with clients too. And the, so I do that for myself sometimes and Darcy will be my defensive board member. And I have yes. another one named Lucy also because I like alliteration and she is the version of me that comes out only during the luteal phase of my cycle, which for anyone who's not familiar with Mm -hmm. phases, that's when you're most likely to get PMS. That's when you're most likely to have mood swings out of my like 11 or 12 days of luteal. It's usually like two or three days where that's most likely to happen. And if that coincides with, let's say some other big emotions that Sandra happens to be happening for other life reasons, Mm -hmm. like this last fall, for example, in October, I was experiencing some new emotions of jealousy, which was not something I'm Uh, I'm used Mm. to. And those came up in all sorts of different ways. And Lucy turned into, she can like, she can be like bitchy. She can be irritable. She can be short fused. Mm -hmm. She can just be like really grumpy. She'd be really emotional. But she came out as this like ridiculous, like tantrum having toddler, completely irrational. Like she, I was like, I'm sorry, who is this person? I have not met her before. Hence the new name. So Lucy, the like Mm -hmm. little monster. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really was, it was helpful to have her as a character. And now we can Mm -hmm. joke about her and I'll be like, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but so Darcy, I think will be my like protector of, she'll be the defensive one. And when she comes out, if I can think of the fact that like, I don't like, she wants to go to war and be like, I'm going to take you to court and I'm going to prove without a shadow of a doubt why I'm right and you're wrong. And I need you to understand every single, you know, it's like, put her, push her aside and think Mm -hmm. about what am I actually, what's the fear here? And just like you said, it's probably about connection with the person. And it's probably about a fear. Like if, if I perceive them to be judging me or criticizing me, even if they're not, it's just like, you know, the the interpretation Mm -hmm. Then I'm like, Mm -hmm. am I just afraid that they are going to, I don't know, not like me, not respect me, think I'm blank, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. And then I'm like, preemptively feeling that potential shame or disappointment or lack of connection. Mm -hmm. And usually too, if you want to go even deeper in that is asking, where did I learn this? When did I hire this board member and why? And that's kind of a nicer, deeper layer to then explore. When do I first, this is one of my favorite questions. When do I first remember this trait? When do I first remember being this way, expressing myself this way, talking like this, using this language, acting like this, whatever. When do I first remember that? And usually that will come from some time from the past. There was a time where that made sense. There was a time where that served you. There was a time that that protector was hired for a reason, right? There was a time where I needed that skill or that trait to protect me legit. And like, it, so this is what's so hard is, is there's a lot of things that we do that come from a time where we needed that trait, like say to be selfish or to be angry or to be busy, to be quick, to be whatever. We, we needed that then. And the brain often doesn't upgrade the tapes and realize it's actually 2024 now, not 1985. And we don't need to be doing that anymore, you know, but you don't realize it until you have therapy or coaching or Tony Robbins, or you read a book and then you go, oh crap, I didn't realize I was doing that. So with defensiveness, it's a beautiful opportunity to look at where did I learn this? Or another question, where was this modeled for me? Who do I know in my life as a child under the age of 10 that did this? And then that's usually dead giveaway. You know, usually that is a huge illuminator. Um, And I think the whole thing about it is just consciousness, just being aware that I do this thing. Compassion, I may never not do this thing. And then the third thing I would say is like integration and welcoming rather than exiling. What most of us want to do is any defensiveness or people pleasing or anything that we have that I don't like within myself. We think 
I think automatically the strategy is to push it away, shut it out. And that doesn't work because like, my God, if that worked to just don't think sad thoughts or don't be anxious, tell the anxious voice, that's not true. Or another one I hear a lot, like the body image uh, space would be like, you just don't listen to the critic. You just tell the critic to fuck off and Mm -hmm. no critic, I'm not going to listen. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work because those parts are trying to protect you from something. And so you can't say, just go wait outside. You have to say, come on in. Let's have a cup of tea. What do you want to talk about? What are you worried about today? Okay. uh Uh-huh. And if you shift into, this is a part of me that's trying to help me, that loves me. It might be doing it in a dysfunctional way, but it's trying to help me. Don't exile it. Don't kick it out because usually what's actually beneath that mask. So Darcy beneath her mask is actually some little, little version of you, some little girl that learned a long time ago, I needed to be defensive to stay safe in some relationship, you know? And then I get that image in my mind of like kicking out little versions of me onto like a street corner. And I'm like, I don't like that idea of like a little six-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old Heidi sitting outside by herself. I'll bring her in. I may not understand her fully yet, or she may drive me nuts, but like everyone is welcome. And every part is just trying to keep us safe, you know? The classic phrase, what you resist persists is coming to mind. And I've been, it's been showing up for me in so many different ways lately. And it's just, it's like hitting me over and over again, how true that is. And and by resist, we could mean criticize or try to shove down or ignore or banish or destroy or whatever. And it really is. It's like, yeah, it's like you're taking this part of you and you're throwing it out the door, but it always comes back in. So we may as well just be like, Hey, it's okay. This is part of me. And just look at it mm-hmm. with as much like incredible compassion and forgiveness and understanding and be like, you are part of me and that's okay. I am so many different things. And this is just one, you know, out of this like amazing tapestry of rich, all sorts of things that make mm-hmm. up each of us. Like we are allowed to have all of those parts too. And the more we can just shine the light on them and like not accept them like we want them to run the show, but accept them like they are part of our story and we can mm-hmm. integrate them and we can figure out where, what role they play. And maybe their role is like they played a, a, a protector part growing up and now we understand them. We're aware of them and they can just be like calmly sitting in the corner every now and then mm-hmm. they're like, Rah! you know, and then we're like, mm-hmm. Hey, I got this. You're good. Thanks mm-hmm. for reminding me that you're still there. Yes. Acceptance and compassion. And I like to say they become a consultant to the organization Ooh, uh-huh. rather than a board member. But I'm also very clear when I have those sessions with clients where we sort of retire a board member, especially protector part, that's dangerous business because protectors, hello, like if I'm off my post and I'm not in my job, obviously you're going to die. You're going to be attacked or the thing that I'm most afraid of is going to happen if I'm not there to protect you. So we'll do sort of a changing of the guard, like a handover. And this is all visual, um, you know, like in imagery, like they might close their eyes and we imagine it, or we just talk through what that might look like. And we basically visualize like a present day me, an adult version of me. So whatever age they are now. So we might say 37 or 45 or 52 is now going to run that role because I would weigh up personally, I would weigh rather a 43 year old Heidi managing something than a five-year-old, you know, and that yeah. often is where they, that makes sense. And then also to release the five-year-old, the 15-year-old to go do what you want to do when you're five or 15 is, which is to be silly and be playful, not have so much burden and so much responsibility in running a board. Like what Mm five-year-old wants to be doing Mm -hmm. that when that's usually why when you like chat to those parts, they say things like, I'm just very tired. I'm exhausted. And it's like, of course you are sweetheart. You've been, you've been an adult 
since you were five, you know, trying to manage this whole defensiveness program. And it's a very intense project and you're five and you shouldn't have to do that. You should be allowed to go play, but it's okay. Me at 43, I got it. And there's all these, look at around the room. There's all of these other amazing adults who are, are going to manage this now. And you don't need to worry about that. Where would you like yeah. to go? Do you want to play outside, play under the table? Do you want some Lego in the corner? And we sort of set them up to do something else. And then it's funny, you know, like six months later, we might be having a conversation and they'll be like, oh my gosh, Heidi, guess who just like totally chimed in in my head? And I'll go who? And they'll yeah. go defensiveness. Darcy yeah, just Darcy. chimed in. Yeah. yeah. She was just going, you're wrong. This isn't true. And then we'll be like, oh, that's interesting. <gasps> I wonder what just happened that made her kind of come forward. So you kind of, you just, by separating it, you're able to do something because if you, if you have it be like, that's just the one voice, it's so overwhelming that we can't like, I don't know. It's like, you can't hear, you can't think if we're all one. Whereas if you separate it out, yeah, it's just a lot easier to manage and change and love. I think those parts of ourself, because you then have more of a balance of seeing all these other parts of me, you know, like, so say with, you know, school, my kids just went back to school this week. And so I have been having conversations with them about how there's a part of you that hates school. There's a part of you that hates separating from me. There's a part of you that hates this teacher, hates that teacher, hates this subject, whatever, hates all of the requirements of school. And then there's this part of you that loves it. And this part loves it. And this, so there's always, I think, a much easier path in life when we can, if you see yourself in the boardroom analogy, you can then see that, yeah, I might be defensive, but that's one part. I'm aware of it. We're working on it. And I know, and you just kind of keep, I think that's part of what life is, is figuring out who are all the parts, who have I exiled and kicked out of the room because I don't like how they make me feel. So you might have said prior to your kind of awareness about defensiveness, defensive view might've been an exile that you did not even want to admit. And then the second part I think is reconciling where we reconcile with that part and kind of acknowledge, sorry, I, I kicked you out for a long time. This is why. Uh, I'd really appreciate you to be here. And I promise I won't kick you out again. Or if it's a protector, can you just not dominate and like always take over that? And then the third step would be integration where we figure out how we integrate them into our life rather than, I don't know, trying to get them out. And that's where humor can be really helpful, I find too. Like sometimes when we're doing this work, it's really easy to take ourselves so seriously and be like, yes, you know, now I have this awareness and it's like, also really helpful to just laugh at it. And that's been something that's, I think, a really helpful tool with Chris and I when we're uh, navigating these kinds of things. And like when, you know, when Lucy came out and was running the show for like five weeks at one time and just to be able to actually really step back and see the humor in it and see the absurdity yes. in it and be like, yes. I don't even know what this version of me is, but like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, and, and laugh at it and see the lightness and the humor. And then that helps us be more curious about it and decide what we want to do about it and be more intentional with our choices as we go. Yeah. It brings more safety. I think that's what we often forget mm. humor does, mm. right? Is humor brings safety to the nervous system. If we go real primal, humor brings safety to the nervous system and it moves you up the polyvagal ladder. Basically it just, if, cause we don't laugh when we're running from a tiger, we are making a <gasps> face and breathing rapidly. Right. But if I am sitting at a comedy show and I'm listening to the comedian on stage, my whole body is going to be in a totally different state than when I'm running from a tiger. Right. It's going to be at the top of the ladder, relaxed and happy. And that's what humor is so, so, so great at doing is 
calming the nervous system. And if your nervous system is calmer, you're able to think better because you're not in just a fight flight state. So yeah, humor for sure. Big fan. Hell yeah. Okay. So thank you so much for that. That was very helpful for me and hopefully for the listeners too. I know I'm not the only one out there who has ever gotten defensive about something. So really, really insightful and just a super simple reframe. That's so helpful. So parenting, speaking of our five-year-old selves and our 43-year-old selves and everything in between, as someone who is a parent yourself and now teaches parents and works with parents and has a lot of experience navigating many different parts of that journey. If you're just like zooming way out and you start with a really the things that you're just like, ah, like, I just wish people knew that blank. Like what are kind of the top things Mm. that you wish either for people who maybe are new parents or they're about to become parents or they're well on their (laughs) journey of being parents, but they're maybe very open to shifting how they do things and having it be better. Yes. Which we all want. I think it's funny how we had sort of included the defensiveness conversation at the beginning, merely as a like tack on from the last podcast episode, but it actually is It's funny because it's very relevant. I think a lot of times when I have like a first session with parents who have come to see me about their child who is disruptive in some way, like they are defiant, disrespectful, strong-willed, punch, hit, or cry constantly, have lots of anxiety. They are just challenging, right? When those parents come to see me, they think they're coming to see me for help with the kid. And what they soon learn is actually they are coming to do work on themselves. And a lot of times people can be very defensive about that and don't kind of want to hear that or admit that. And a lot of times I'll have this sort of debate with people about, you know, well, I was raised in the 80s and I turned out okay. And with the number of times I've had the, I turned out okay, I was spanked, I was hit, you know, and I, I turned out okay. My thing with that is always like, did we though? Did we though? Like, did we? The amount of like addiction, medication, um, eating disorders, divorce, depression, anxiety, like low job satisfaction. Like there are just so many things out there that I'm like, nah, I call bullshit. I do not Mm -hmm. think we turned out okay. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we tell ourselves to feel better about a helpless situation, which is childhood and how we were parented. Another thing where defensiveness plays out is the fact that how you were parented is going to be your I don't want to say template, but it's going to inform how you parent either way, good or bad. Right. So let's say you were hit a lot. You then might go, okay, I'm definitely not going to hit my kids, but you might swing really far to the other side of the spectrum, which then might be that you, I don't know, like are super permissive and you're like a doormat and your kids get away with everything and there's no boundaries, you know? So I'm not saying necessarily that like exactly how your parents are is what you're going to do, but that would be the first place to sort of practice not being defensive and then also looking at reflecting on. So that would say, if I'm saying like the, let's go top three of, if I could only impart, you know, three bits of knowledge to every parent out there, that would be the first is I often will say to parents, did you go to parenting school? And everyone goes, no, I wish, is there one? I, you know, I would love for there to be one. Uh, I go, yeah, you did. It's called your childhood. That is parenting school. So whatever was modeled, communicated, done, not done, was giving your brain, your nervous system, how you communicate, how you interact with people, that was all being communicated then during your childhood. Good and bad, whatever. But your brain was essentially taking a shit ton of notes and trying to, I don't know, make sense of life and the world. And 
like just making lots of like truths, lots of lists and lots of beliefs and facts about the world uh, is what your brain was sort of downloading unconsciously throughout your childhood and how your parents, even how your parents interacted, right? Were they storm out of the room kind of people or were they let's sit down and talk about it? Silent treatment, sweep it under the rug, like whatever stuff was modeled for you is you were just downloading unconsciously as a child and taking in as quote unquote normal. And so many times clients will tell me things like, Oh, I went to someone's house. I remember going to someone's house for dinner when I was a kid, when I was like, I don't know, 11. I went, you know, to Bobby's house for dinner and they all sat at the table together. And I was looking around going, this is weird. They're all sitting together and like talking about their day. And then I'll say, what was your childhood like? And they're like, we either ate at the coffee table, watching TV scattered, you know, like one kid or two kids you know, whatever. And then when we got older, everyone went to their rooms and ate in their bedrooms by themselves. And we never ate together. And I never realized that that is actually what I was doing with my kids and that I don't want to do that or whatever. Right. So it's just these little moments of impact from our childhood and not realizing that it is playing out in our parenting now. So that would, I would say, be the first thing. And then the second thing I think would be prioritizing connection. I think that that is the most, 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 most important thing for children, for everyone, really. I mean, connection is what relationship is what makes us feel safe. It's what makes us be our best selves. If I'm connected to myself, if I'm connected to my caregivers, that enables me to go explore the world. And yeah, connection is huge, 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 huge. And it's one of those boring answers, you know, like if you were to talk to, I don't know, like a personal, you know, this space, the personal trainer space, they would say something like it's about, uh, you know, it's not about a specific diet. It's about lifestyle and it's about balance and, you know, the importance of like the basic boring stuff of like eat, sleep, be consistent, yeah. move your body. Right. It's like, it's super boring and it's not like revolutionary, but it's like that often is the answer is to just go back to the basics and in parenting. Whenever I get asked questions, you know, like a specific parenting question, I often am just like, I know this is really annoying, but connection, connection, relationship, focus on the relationship. That's kind of where I always end up. And then the third thing I would say is, and I would say this is probably the most important. If the other two, you completely forget, this would be the one thing is reframing the way that you see your kid. And this is actually anyone reframing the way that you see anybody you interact with, changing the story from they won't help me. They won't listen. They won't do what I want. They won't um, be how I want them to be. Switch it instead to they can't for mm. whatever reason. And is it right or wrong? Doesn't matter. They can't. In that moment, I can't listen to you. I can't help you. I can't do the thing instead of I won't. Because when you shift that language to believing that it's not that this person won't listen to me or they won't help me. That is so ladled with toxic venom and basically gets my nervous system stressed and gets me on edge. If I am telling myself the story that this person won't help me and they won't listen, it's it's intense and stressful. But if I change the language to, they can't listen right now. They can't help me right now. Well, this is annoying and this is frustrating, but uh, I don't feel so kind of maybe attacked or stressed. Uh, it's not so adversarial. They can't. And that can'tness usually comes down to how they're wired, how their brain is laid out. And it's usually 99% of the time, not a choice. So even if a kid is punching or hitting or spitting or screaming in someone's face, 
you know, or sticks their foot out to trip a kid, you know, parents will say to me, what do you mean can't, won't? They, it was so blatant. It was so obvious. They totally chose that. They chose to scream. They chose to punch. And I go, no, it's, it's that I couldn't regulate. I couldn't keep my impulses back. I couldn't rein myself in. Not that I won't. It's that I couldn't in that moment. Why? My nervous system is immature. My brain is immature. I'm still growing and developing. There's a reason why, or that sound was making me feel so overwhelmed and unsafe. I had to hit them to make it shut up because my brain was just on fire with sensory overload, right? Mm. So just shifting that, it's not about won't, it's about can't. And that then shifts you into a different space of like, they're a good kid. They're just having a hard time. But if the story you tell yourself is that they're a bad kid doing bad things, you suffer because just that statement alone stresses out your nervous system to think about your kid like that. And it stresses the kid out because they can tell that you think that about them, either because you've said it or just you are feeling it and they can sense that energy from you. But if you shift into your good kid, you're just having a hard time. Everybody wins. They mm. then feel more understood, safer with you. Your body doesn't perceive them as such a threat. So that just shifting to that, you're a good kid, you're just having a hard time is huge. And I see with so many adult clients, when we have these conversations about stuff that happened when they were kids, and if I say something to them, like, what would have happened if your mom or your dad had said to you instead of the way that they shamed you, punished you, berated you, what would have happened if in that moment they responded with, sweetheart, I know you are a good kid. You're just having a hard time. Like almost like clockwork. Every time I say that line to my adult clients, there's usually a huge dump of tears because it's like that little part in them is finally like, yes, you get it. I, yeah. I didn't mean to do that. I, did, I wasn't trying to be disrespectful, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, that made me tear up just as you said that too. And I was like, ah, oh, that, that would be, that would feel so good to hear in that moment, no matter who you are, but especially as a little kid who's hearing that instead of you're bad, you're wrong. Why do you always do this? Why can't you be more like this? Or the thing that the phrase that makes me bristle the most out of many, pretty much any phrase, especially like seeing it in a movie or something is when somebody says, what's wrong with you? I'm just like, can you like, if you, if you say that phrase to a kid over and over, like the, I mean, anyway, that's a whole side tangent, but like the power of words and the power of choosing just how you frame something and then how you then see the other person or the kid in this case so differently by reframing that and then the words you choose to be more aligned with that. And two two things I want to say on what happened or what's wrong with you. A beautiful book named um, by Bruce Perry, who's one of the gurus in trauma land and trauma research. And you know, the ACEs um, <clears throat> questionnaire, have you ever heard of the adverse child experiences? Bruce is one of the co-founders, I guess, of that research. Amazing, amazing clinician and researcher. He wrote a book with Oprah uh, last year, the year before, called What Happened to You, which is mm. his suggestion for the alternative. When you feel like you want to say to someone, what is wrong with you? Instead, yeah. swap it to what happened to you? Because that then makes you realize something would have happened to make this person be like that. And then also for ourselves, if I behave in a way that I am not proud of, or I find myself saying that in my head, what is wrong with What's you? What's wrong with me? Yeah. I, yeah, I will say instead what happened to make me be like that or in the past or in the present. And then usually you find the answer and you find a, a very clear understanding, which enables you to have more compassion. Compassion and then curiosity instead of just criticism. So, okay, these are so good. So when you when you are working with parents and you are helping them through these realizations and you're teaching them these reframes and tools or they're doing the work themselves or through some other some other some other place mm -hmm. what are the changes that tend to then happen in the kids 
that you notice or like what changes in the the relationship between the parents and go through this process? Mm. I think all of us long, like just so deeply to be seen and to be understood and being misunderstood is probably one of the greatest like kryptonites and pain points, especially for neurodivergent people, because neurodivergent people kind of just chronically feel misunderstood the way that they see the world, the way that uh, things are experienced and perceived is often just so different that then the like responses often of how a neurodivergent person perceives the world and then responds or reacts to the world is often just very misunderstood by everyone else. And that obviously can lead to such a huge sense of isolation and like not belonging and not belonging. And like belonging is like a topic I feel like I could like shame. I could talk about that for like ever. It's one of one of the topics I'm very passionate about. But the problem is with when we we feel like with belonging and when we feel like we don't belong, it's very stressful to our nervous system and it's very hard to think, to be regulated, to like sit still, to follow instructions, to do chores or whatever, if I feel like I don't belong. And if I feel like I don't belong, I'm also a lot less likely to give a shit and to want to contribute to the family or listen or pick up my stuff or whatever, because I don't belong. So who cares? You know, I, it's sort of like the rebel kind of the renegade kind of comes out in us. If we feel like we don't belong or we don't fit in, we adopt the sort of rebel vibe. Right. And that happens a lot for a lot of people in their home that they don't feel like they belong in their own family. I mean, I've sat with so many clients where there's so many big, big, big tears at the realization. Oh my gosh, this adult feeling I have of not belonging and that I don't belong anywhere. That's not new. And I'm like, yeah, that's not new. We've, we've known this a while. <laughs> and then they'll say something like, that started in childhood. And I'm like, yeah. And it started in your own family. It started in your own house. That's where you first felt, I don't belong. Whoa, huge, you know, oh my gosh, huge epiphany that that's where this came from. And so if you can first, like if you can start a kid off kind of on the like ideal path of feeling like they belong and how does one feel like they belong? You feel like you're understood. People are telling you, you make sense. You belong here. You fit in. I love being your mom. I love being your dad. I love being your parent. I love having you in our family. We wouldn't be the same without you. You are so special. You're such a cool kid. I'm so glad I get to parent you. If we're not saying those things, which by the way, like how many of us ever felt that like or heard that never, but that's like something I say to my kids almost every day. Like we do, I love yous and stuff, but I honestly, I don't think I love yous matter as much as saying, I love being your mom and I love having you as my kid. You're such a cool kid. That dude, that that's way better than just, I love you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so saying those kinds of things and making a kid feel like they belong and are understood is huge. And I think with the making them feel understood is communicating to them that even when they're having huge, 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 big feelings and, you know, maybe hitting or swearing or whatever, that the way that you're approaching them is you make sense. And this is wild, right? Because most of us would have been sort of trained that when a kid's acting like that, you're supposed to say that's inappropriate or we don't hit in this family. We don't hit our siblings. We don't hit our friends and saying that kind of stuff. But what 
I think one, what a lot of us don't realize is it's actually quite shaming. And the way that a kid is responding is simply based on their lack of brain maturity and their immature nervous system and lack of impulse control. But if we can instead go, it makes sense. Okay. So what you're saying is when you stuck your foot out to trip her as she went past, you did mean to trip her because you wanted her to stop because the running around was stressing you out, but you didn't mean to hurt her. Is that right? And so many times kids will be like, yes, that is exactly like I totally meant to hit him. but I didn't mean to hurt him. And mm. there's often this real disconnection that kids have in like consequences. And like, if I do this, then, you know, because parents will say to me like, but I watched him, he did it on purpose. And oftentimes if I tell them next time, go inquire and say on the whole, I did it on purpose thing, se- separate that little nuance and go, did you mean to trip him, but you didn't mean for him to get hurt? They'll look at them and go, yes. Or when you kicked the soccer ball directly in her face, you were more curious about what would happen, but you actually didn't mean to hurt her. Because then when you saw her face after and she was crying and upset, you were like, oh, I didn't think about that, that you were going to be hurt when I kicked the ball in your face. Huh. And that piece then is what, if they feel understood, then I have access to be able to teach you a different way. And I also have access to de-escalate your nervous system and basically teach you emotional regulation and model emotional emotional regulation myself. But if I come at you, that is inappropriate. That's not okay. Don't do that. If I come at you kind of like that, I'm not teaching you anything about regulation. Does that make sense? It sounds a lot like a version of yes anding someone, right? Where you're where you're first validating them so that yes. they feel heard, feel seen, feel like they mm-hmm. matter, et cetera. And then you can come out with like, like even just in a conversation. And I, I don't think, I don't know how much we've talked about yes ending. I think maybe Chris and I in the relationship episode talked a little bit about that, mm-hmm. but just the tool of validating someone first. And then you can have a discussion around maybe things that you disagree about rather than just invalidating their whole experience and then they shut down and then it doesn't matter what you talk about after that. So same thing with a kid in this situation. It sounds like you're you're first sort of validating, you're helping them feel understood. You're because as soon as you make them feel bad or wrong or shame them, then the connection breaks. And then any yes. sort of, you know, teachable moment thereafter is probably going to go yeah. over their head anyway. But if you help them feel safe and seen and heard and whatever, then and like you said, like regulate their nervous system, mm-hmm. then you can come in and actually get curious and you as the parent can learn and they as the kid can learn. And it like, it opens up the doors for learning versus, versus just shutting them down. So it's the connection piece first always. Yeah. And it's hard because as a human being, I don't have unlimited capacity. I'm not perfect. I have a nervous system too. I have my own childhood crap too. So like as much as I know all of these things, I teach all this crap. Like I do this for a living. Like this is, I'm, I'm on stages doing public speaking about this content. I do, you know, content online. I have one-on-one sessions with clients. I know this stuff backwards and forwards, right? I still yell at my kids. I still lose my shit. I still shame them, criticize them, do all of the things I know I'm not supposed to do. Why? Because I'm human. And in those yeah. moments, you can't, you can't always choose. And this is why I get really cranky when people make comments about or or insinuate that it's all a choice, like that I can choose my thoughts and I can choose how I respond. Yeah, sometimes. But if we're in a place of choice, that means I'm using my cortex, right? And the prefrontal cortex is the most evolved part of the brain. It's the part of the brain that's responsible for like logic and reasoning and productivity and understanding consequence. And 
It's the part of the brain that makes good choices. And then the other part of the brain that is sort of in direct competition always with the cortex is the amygdala. And the amygdala, a quick way to think of it is like the bodyguard, buff dude with a gun, anything remotely threatening, shoot it. I don't care. Just react. Don't respond. Don't think. Just shoot it. You know, everything is a threat. Survival and just get through this would be sort of the bodyguard's mantra. And then the cortex is kind of this old, wise librarian or an old wise airline pilot who's like just so calm in stressful situations. And that's what we want our kids to access. We want to access. But unfortunately, someone has to be in charge, right? There needs to be one part of the brain that is the first point of contact when any sort of sensory thing comes in. And unfortunately, obviously there's a million other parts of the brain, but for sake of argument, the amygdala is essentially the first part of the brain that has to decide whether or not something is a threat or not. And the amygdala is binary. It's not half pregnant. You are, or you aren't. And the amygdala goes, you are safe or you aren't safe, period. Like there's no gray in safety to the amygdala. And so if I'm unsafe, that's going to heighten me. If I'm, and again, this is like one of the most annoying parts about it is it's perceived. It's a perception thing. And what is unsafe to you and what's unsafe to me, I don't know, it's going to be totally different. If you grew up with um, Joe Exotic on a tiger farm and you love tigers because yay, tigers, besties, rah, rah, rah. And if I bring a tiger into the room right now and say we're in an audience of 100 people, you're pumped because you're like, oh my gosh, tigers make me feel alive, remind me of childhood, the best memories of my life are with tigers. And your nervous system is humming. But if there's other people in the audience whose whole family was mauled by tigers, say, or they were tortured by tigers as a kid or they used to have nightmares, I don't know. Everyone has a different relationship with tigers and everyone's brain is going to respond differently, everyone's nervous system. And so when we're talking about kids and parenting, that's a huge component of where pain and suffering and shitty parenting moments come from is perception. Our kid perceives it one way, the parent perceives it another and we we mismatch or the parent then maybe invalidates the child that your perception is wrong or you shouldn't be upset about this or that shouldn't make you why does that make you anxious what's wrong with you mm-hmm. and if you can switch into oh you're worried about that mm-hmm. that makes sense even if you're not worried about asteroids hitting the earth but if your kid is i need to meet my kid where they're at and say yeah. you're worried about asteroids mhm Yeah, I can see that. Your amygdala is really going on about the asteroids thing right now, isn't he? Yeah, he's really just trying to keep you safe. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it makes sense. You know, asteroids, we can't control them. I I get it. I think that makes sense. I wonder what we could do to help your amygdala remember, though. Remember when we were reading about this in the space books about the likelihood of asteroids hitting the Earth? And remember when we were learning about blah, blah, blah. I wonder what sort of stuff we could remind your amygdala of about why that's something we can, you know, put to the side or mom, I'm going to hold that for you. I'm going to worry about that. You don't need to worry about that or whatever. Like you can help them work through stuff, but only if we start this whole freaking conversation with connection and a connected relationship, and then also understanding like where they are in the brain development thing and realizing that the cortex, that part of the brain that is responsible for logic and making good choices is not fully online yet. The cortex doesn't fully develop till 25. And some research even shows 28. So 
dude, if you have a kid living at your house, like you are so far from 25 to 28 <laughs> yeah. that that the likelihood of you making good choices um, is very, very, very low. And again, even as an adult, if something is stressful to me or emotionally charged, I'm probably not going to make good choices or do the right thing. Like when my kids are frustrating me, I know not to yell, but why am I going to yell? Because my nervous system gets overwhelmed. I step out of my cortex and into my amygdala and just want compliance or I just want control. And so the yelling is what's going to bring me safety, or so my brain says immediately. Hence why as adults learning to regulate our nervous systems can be such an amazing tool. And then as adults parenting, learning to help your kids feel safe. It's like, so if it all comes back to safety, it's like, how do I help my kid feel safe in this moment so I can stay connected to them? And, but then also how do I help my own body feel safe in this moment so I can access the part of me that's going to do the thing that I actually want to do? Yeah. And that's so hard with like, so in the neurodivergent population, because of the way that the neurodivergent brain and nervous system is laid out, there's often kind of roadblocks to that, right? There's often unwanted ways that were sort of, I don't know, like blocked or it's not as easy maybe that it is for other people, like emotional regulation, for example, the neurodivergent brain it's like it's it's missing that setting, the setting for emotional regulation when the when all the systems were getting passed out, the neurodivergent one, it's like that's a part of the package is and then one of the other settings in the neurodivergent package, you know, is less emotional regulation or a harder time regulating. It's like a feature of the neurodivergent package. A lot of times parents will tell me uh, that they didn't realize often this is in a conversation around medication, if they get on medication or their child gets on medication. But usually for the adults, they'll say, oh my gosh, is this what everyone else feels like? This level of calm or being able to like mm. quiet the anxious voice or say with ADHD medication to have your brain feel quieter and that it's more like less loud in the brain and everything is a bit more calmer and easier to focus on things. Clients will oh, almost every time say to me, is this what it feels like? Is this what quote unquote normal feels like? Is this what everyone else feels like? And I'm I'm like, yeah, this is what neurotypicals will have as like their baseline with anxiety or, you know, what you are maybe taking a medication to hit is where they maybe start their day with how, how they feel in their body anxious or even connected to their body. So like, there's a great thing. So like hunger cues, fullness cues, toileting, that setting in the neurodivergent brain is off. It's not on the same, I don't know, dial. And so a lot of neurodivergent people will forget to eat or overeat. So it's sort of like it could go either way. Like I don't feel hungry and I don't feel full either. It kind of can go either way. Toileting, especially with kids, you know, parents will say that they, the kid will wet their pants or almost pee their pants because they're so preoccupied in what they're playing. Whereas a neurotypical child will get the message, oh, I think I need to go to the bathroom, take themselves calmly, go and then come back. But the neurodivergent setting has a lot of, I don't know, frustrating settings that are set are frustrating for the child or the person who's you know living with it because who would choose that who would want to experience a lot of things that are harder than for everyone else like with emotional regulation and impulse control and then the parent it's hard because they have to navigate that and it's really 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 challenging so that was the perfect segue into our final topic of the neurodivergent mm -hmm topic in general, but also especially uh, neurospicy kids. So what are the main things that you would wish to impart on people, whether it be about parenting or whether, or yeah, any of your favorite takeaways or just things that you wish people knew in general? Mm. I think 
The number one thing with neurodivergent kids, and let's just clarify what that means too. So neurodiversity is a, a big term that oftentimes people don't really know what that means. But if you think about what does the word diverse mean, you know what that means. It means different. And I believe in like a neurodiverse or neurodiversity affirming model, which means on this side of the fence, those of us that are neurodiverse affirming, we don't really believe in like things are disorders or there's something wrong with you. Unfortunately, in the medical model, that's the best language we have right now. And that's what it's called. If you wanted to get medication or talk to a doctor or get an assessment, we unfortunately have to use language like autism spectrum disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I don't believe that they are disorders, but that's in this day and age, the language that we have to use. But what I believe it means in a better terminology would be that we're all differently wired and different people have different skill sets and assets and strengths. And then what comes with that is always weaknesses. You can't be strong in everything. And in sort of mainstream medical language, I guess you would say the alternative term then for, or the opposite would be neurotypical. So typical average and what unfortunately a lot of people would say is normal. I get that question a lot from parents of why can't my kid be normal or teachers who say this kid's just not normal. And that is often a kind of dead giveaway for me that we're probably dealing with a neurodiverse kid uh, when I hear that kind of language. So in that realm of neurodiversity, we have like an umbrella at the top that says neurodiverse. And then beneath that, you have any kind of diverse mental health Again, not my language, but disorder or label. So that can be autism, ADHD, OCD, uh, dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, sensory processing, auditory processing, um, anxiety technically is in the neurodivergent realm because it's different. It's outside of what is the typical way that a brain is mapped out and a nervous system is mapped out. So in the neurodivergent setting system, a huge issue is anxiety. The way that the neurodivergent system is laid out often, unfortunately, perceives threat, error, and it is just everything is differently experienced than the neurotypical brain. And it feels like a lot more things are threatening me or going to kill me is what the neurodivergent brain would say. And then because of that, if you view it more as a neurodivergent brain is more prone to anxiety. This is also why a lot of women don't get diagnosed with ADHD or autism till later in life, but they did get diagnosed with anxiety when they were younger. That is why, because so many women are awesome at masking and hiding it. And also we've not had research and stuff to understand how these things show up in girls and women, whereas we most of the research, like say in ADHD, for example, was just focused on boys like in the 90s and stuff. Anyway, and so I think if you learn, okay, so it's an umbrella got it. And it's multiple different sort of things that it can be, but all of them kind of can have an underpinning of anxiety beneath them. What you then get to do is you go, okay, so if anxiety is what's driving this behavior, that then says to me that they're in a stress response. Well, so what do you do when you're in a stress response? Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn? Huh. Well, now that I look at their behavior through that lens, I now see the reason why when I asked him to do his homework or asked her to clean up her room, why she responded that way, her brain perceived that as a threat. She then went into a fight, flight, freeze. Oh, and so when you start to view it that way, it makes you have more compassion on them. But also, again, that huge shift of shifting from they won't listen to they can't. You then shift into this really beautiful place of compassion where you go, mm, they're not choosing this. Why would you choose that to feel like everything is a threat? 
nobody would choose that. Why would you choose that? So when you shift into they're not choosing this, they're good kid having a hard time. It makes it just a lot easier to parent a neurodivergent kid. Yes. So helpful. Just the calm kind of feeling of that and the compassion that immediately mm-hmm. I think could come instead of what I imagine must be a lot of frustration and a lot of wishing things were different and yeah. not intending to, but ending up criticizing and shaming. And yeah. If the main issue here then is anxiety or like threat, like the threat detection system in the brain of a neurodivergent brain is like the dial is like the knob is like, you know, cranked way too high. That then is such great guidance to go, okay, well, I then need to be as safe as possible. I then need to be engaging, speaking to, behaving with this child in a way that does not ramp them up any more than they already are. And what does that mean? Well, if I'm going to come at them with criticism, what does that make their brain feel? Binary, right? Safe or not safe. So it doesn't feel safe when it's criticized. What happens if I yell? Safe or not safe? unsafe. So a lot of times parents and teachers don't realize that they're actually like really contributing to the problem of the kid's dysregulation and perception of fear. They don't mean to, but they are. And this is where like I was presenting at a school the other day and one of the teachers asked at the end in Q&A, it feels like the students' meltdowns just happen out of nowhere. And I was like, No, dude, they don't happen out of nowhere. They've been building. It's sort of like a Coke bottle and you're just shaking it, shaking it, shaking it, shaking it. But what you don't realize is the things that have contributed to shaking up this Coke bottle, the neurotypical brain, or maybe not even the neurotypical, but just other people may not perceive that was a shake right there of what just happened, that their brain is perceiving that as stressful. And then you don't know how many times that's happened before 9 a.m. or noon. And then when they get to your class at one, You don't know how many times that Coke bottle has been shook up so that by the time they get to you and you say, can everyone please sit down? That was a little too loud. That was a little too firm. It was a little too much of a direct demand. And their brain then explodes because they've been kind of holding all of these shakes kind of all day long. And that is classic to the neurodivergent experience where stuff seems to come out of nowhere. But if you were to interview their nervous system, they would be like, dude, we have been trying to calm this thing the whole morning. And that was just the straw that broke the camel's back, you know? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm going to let you go soon, but I have two more questions, quick ones before we let you go. One of them is uh, you mentioned the polyvagal ladder briefly earlier. And for any listener who was like, wait, what is that? What is, can you give us just the real quick definition of polyvagal ladder and what do we need to know about that? Yep. So polyvagal ladder is developed by Dr. Stephen Porges, guru in trauma land, brain stuff, development, you know, Google him. He's super smart. He wrote a whole book on this. So like, I'm really dumbing it down here and making it a real simplified version. (laughs) Yeah. He would he'd probably be mortified that this is how I explain it. And then Deb Dana, who's another guru in trauma land, uh, she did the analogy of the ladder. So that's the combo is the the work of those two. So if you think about a ladder, a ladder, you can't skip rungs. You have to climb sequentially. And that's a big thing with polyvagal theory and polyvagal ladder is it's a sequence of events. At the top of the ladder, I want you to visualize Winnie the Pooh. And next to Winnie the Pooh, the words safe, social, and engaged. (laughs) And then middle of the ladder is Tigger, anxious, mobilized, agitated, you know, Tigger bouncing around. And then at the bottom of the ladder, Eeyore which is shut down, overwhelmed. Mm. And so what 
Hoard just realized is we all know this, but there wasn't really a term for it. And he developed the term and then the language just, and then did the research to support it. Poly means many vagal referring to the vagus nerve, vagus nerve, biggest nerve that runs through the body connected to the amygdala, surprise, surprise, the fight flight response runs through all our organs, all our limbs. It's the big dog. And the vagus nerve basically determines and decides what is perceived as threat and then how we respond to it, right? Again, something else in neurodivergent research is the way that the vagus nerve is, I don't know, how would you word that laid out or what it looks like or how it operates is different in neurodivergent people. And we know this, that we can actually see it, test it. It's, you know, factual. Uh, It's differently laid out in the neurodivergent system. So what he realized is, or not realized, but put, you know, wording to the way that you think or perceive things and the the like biofeedback that your body is giving your brain is they're talking to each other. So a quick example could be I bite into a lemon and I salivate and stuff, right? If I just tell you to think about biting into a lemon and visualize it, you'll start to salivate, right? So it's sort of like the, the body and the mind are connected and they make each other do stuff, right? The reason why this is so important in parenting is a lot of times when you look at your child and you see how they're responding, well, and adults, this is everyone really, it helps if you see them where they are in the, in the ladder. So if I'm talking to someone and they're smiling and they look safe and social and engaged, I know they're at the top of the ladder. And for teachers, this is important. Their brain is open. Their brain is ready to learn. They're in a, a space of I can take on new information because I feel safe, social and engaged. If I drop down the ladder and I start feeling agitated, anxious, tense, I'm getting a little bit like, or maybe I need to move a little bit. My brain's not so much in the place for learning or having a teachable moment with the parent, but I'm not really regulated when I'm in Tigger. And then if I'm an Eeyore, it's all too hard. Like everything that's like depression is Eeyore, mm-hmm. Tigger would be anxiety, right? It's all too hard. Also not really open for learning, whatever. The problem is what we don't realize is that a lot of times when our kids are being very angry or very defiant or very irritable or very just challenging, that it's actually their nervous system trying to come back up the ladder to get to a safe and social place. The, the nervous system is doing its best to regulate. But to do that, and this is why the ladder analogy is so important, it's not a choice. It's a sequence of events. So if I'm down the ladder, <clears throat> and I want to get up to safe social, what do I have to pass through? I have to pass through the irritated, agitated steps. So what that might look like is, if you have a kid who's having a really hard, say, drop off at school in the morning, they might go into shutdown because they're really sad that they have to separate from their parent. And then maybe an hour after they get to school, they start pushing someone or they start saying to the teacher, I'm not going to do my work. And they start getting really agitated. The teacher says, this is unacceptable. You need to go to the principal's office that then keeps them in that state. It doesn't actually help them regulate or it makes them drop back down. Whereas if instead they said to the kid, hey, what's up, bud? I know you're a good kid and you don't normally talk to me like that. So I know for you to talk to me like that, there must be something going on. Something happened this morning. What's up, bud? What's going on? Do you see if I meet them with safety and I meet them with validation and empathy, that then gives them what they need, which is a sense of safety. I'm understood. I belong. That then helps them regulate and go up the ladder up to Winnie the Pooh. Such a great analogy and such a clear (laughs) visual. That's perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay. Final question, which is a trick question because it's actually a three-part question. So Uh here we are. (laughs) But on the last episode, you were talking about with your whole journey and the education you got through uni and all of that, but how like your real education, especially around all things trauma started after school 
in all the mm-hmm. many books that we see behind you in your lovely bookcase. <laughs> and then I completely forgot to ask you about your favorite recommendations. So for people who are, mm-hmm. for listeners who are like, holy shit, I need to know all these things, or I want to dip my toe. I want to learn more. I want to read. So for all of these three topics, do you have any top, top, I'm sure you could list a thousand, but what are your favorite book recommendations for, we'll start with just trauma. Yeah. Trauma Bible is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. That is definitely where most of us started learning more about trauma. There's also um, Peter Levine, Waking the Tiger. That was probably the first one I read. Uh, Bruce Perry, The Boy Was Raised as a Dog. That one's heavy and is a bite-sized pieces kind of book. But I also really like the book he wrote with Oprah last a couple of years ago called What Happened to You, which has a few of his stories from The Boy Was Raised as a Dog. Uh, but What Happened to You, I think, is a really um, good overview. So trauma, yeah, that would probably be my favorite in trauma is anything by Peter Levine, Bessel van der Kolk, or Bruce Perry. They are kind of the gurus. And Peter Levine is also really great in healing. So if someone um, has a lot of trauma and they want to work through it and process, Peter Levine and somatic experiencing is is the way. And then parenting, I think for ragey, explosive kids, my favorite would probably be Ross Green, uh, The Explosive Child, which is spot on and is a lot of the the stuff that I subscribe to. Mona De La Hook has a really great book called um, Body Brain Parenting, and that came out last year. She's also a guru in the neurodivergent kind of um, challenging kids land. What else would I say? I love books too that are written by people with lived experience. So there's lots of books about ADHD and autism that you can read by professionals, but I personally prefer reading stuff from someone who's actually lived it. So uh, ADHD 2.0 is probably the most recent and that's by, I think it's Jeff Hallowell and he, Hallowell and Ratey are the two guys who kind of pioneered a lot of the books around ADHD. So I like reading a lot of their stuff. Uh, And then autism, my favorite book I'd probably say is called Edo in Autism Land. I-D-O is his name. Uh, And he is a autistic guy who basically just talks about his experience of being forced to do a lot of different therapies and behavior change things as a kid. And he's nonverbal and he was given a words board maybe sometime in high school or maybe when he was like 12 or something uh, by therapists who taught him how to communicate through a board. And then he wrote the book and you just get this amazing insight into what his life is like to be sort of trapped and locked in that inability to communicate. And also what ABA, uh, Applied Behavioral Analysis, which is the used to be the most common treatment or behavior management treatment, I guess, that used to be used in the autism community uh, as like an intervention. And then we learned in time it sucked and it was actually really damaging. And it's not really, it's very contentious now. It's a very hot topic, but he talks about that. And yeah, so I love that book. I'm trying to think of any others. I'm in the process of writing one. I don't know how long that will take, but yeah, I'd love to, I would love to be able to say my book, but that's yeah, in the process of what I'm doing now is just trying to write something that explains a little bit more about where these kids are coming from and to help parents, I guess, understand that they're good kids, you know, just having a hard time. And same with adults. I mean, that's what a lot of the work I do with adults and private practice is getting them to reframe how they see their younger selves, that I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't a naughty teenager. Uh, As a good kid, I was just having a hard time. Well, when your book comes out, we'll have you back on here for sure to talk about that. (laughs) But in the meantime, what is the best place for people to go find you and connect with you? 
Oh, thanks. HeidiRogers.com, H-E-I-D-I-R-O-G-E-R-S. Com. I have a lot of free resources. I have a lot of free like webinars, um, the reset webinar, which is all about just resetting your parenting. Yeah, there's just, there's a lot. I just did a back to school one that was free. So there's a lot of kind of gateway drug content that I put out there that's free to learn um, some of the basics. Uh, and then if you want to deep dive or you, you get like sort of a sampling of it and you're like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. I want to learn more then I have more comprehensive like parenting programs where we have like weekly coaching calls. Yeah. So that I would start with my website or my Instagram, which is Heidi Rogers underscore to consume some of my stuff. And then if it fits and it resonates, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you would agree with this. I'm a big believer in um, picking the right person because nothing I say is new. There's nothing like that I put out there that is like mind blowingly you know, fascinating. It's all, there's no new messages, right? There's just new messengers. And a lot of times I find that the way that say, I don't know, Tony Robbins explains something. He is so short and sharp with how he explains things. I can get it so much quicker than I might've heard that example 700 times, but the way that he could explain something say is really quick and I get it. And that is one of the things that I think if you want to learn with me, it's because there's something in the way that I explain it that makes your brain get it. That's what you need to do. I think is always look for the teachers that helps your brain get it quickly. And then you stick with them and you hang out with them because then you're going to just learn quicker and be able to change and, you know, execute. So yeah. Couldn't agree more with that hundred percent. And I thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. I'm like such a hungry student for all these topics. (laughs) So I really appreciate you giving so generously of your time and wisdom Um, and selfishly just, I so appreciate it. I'm just like, if I wasn't just interviewing you, I would be like voraciously taking notes and (laughs) trying to memorize all this stuff because I think it's really important and just so helpful for people to know. So thank you for your time and thank you listener for your time. And also I I really want to shout out to the listener too. A lot of you have been reaching out to me when you share something with a friend and it just means the world. I got a, such a cool example actually right before this of a client who was like, who, who's not single, but who, who was like, I listened to your soulmate episode and you mentioned something about like, you know, you, you might not need this, but maybe send it to a friend and was like, I have the perfect friend for this. And absolutely like forced the friend to sit down and da- download it right in that moment. So just thank you all for sharing. Thank you for rating and reviewing. And if this episode in particular was helpful for you, definitely feel free to screenshot it and you can tag me, you can tag Heidi on Instagram and we would love to share it. And just appreciate you. So Heidi, thank you. You and thank you listeners and everybody. I love you. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye.